Our scripture this morning is going to be from the book of Judges, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Um, Also, before we get to that, if you want to put, uh, flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 31, uh, beginning in verse 16, and kind of put your finger there. I'm going to read from that as well. Uh, so 2024 has gotten started off with a bang, huh? Typically, in a calendar year, you don't get to hear from me or don't have to listen to me, but maybe once, twice. I'm afraid that that's uh, changed a little bit. I don't know how many of you know and got the email, but just in case you did not uh, had a, or had a chance to read it, Pastor Tim is home. He is recovering. Uh, he's got a long uh, kind of challenging road. This will be a very difficult and different year for him. Um, I'm probably as good a person to understand what he is facing over the next months, really over probably the balance of this year. There's some challenges, but they can be overcome. And the good news is, is the prognosis from the doctors for him is a complete recovery. And that is the good news. But that being said, um, we have an opportunity because of his faithfulness to this church for going on 21 years of ministering to us. We get to return that favor to him. And uh, I think we are up to the challenge of being able to minister to him and to his family because it's going to be a difficult uh, year. Also, um, you know, you just kind of look around the world. How many of you kind of go about your day and if, if you care to take a look at what's going on around, whether it's here locally or around the world, it, it's, it can be discouraging. It can be very discouraging and you kind of wonder... How have we gotten to this point? What has gone so wrong that we find ourselves in this position? And I think the book of Judges, and as we will see as we progress through the Old Testament, Israel is an example of how this can go so wrong so fast. But the beauty of the Old Testament is the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament and he is faithful regardless and despite our unfaithfulness and he demonstrates it. These stories for me as I work through it is they demonstrate his faithfulness despite our unfaithfulness. So the book of Judges picks up at the end of Joshua with Joshua's death and the conquest that they were uh, that laid out for us in Joshua And this book covers roughly 350 years. So it goes from the conquest of the other side of the Jordan, the the land of Canaan, um, all the way to the time of the kings. In fact, something that I learned in my study of this, and I had never had it put together for me, and this is Samson, the last of the judges, and Samuel were contemporaries. They ministered in the same place at the same time. So that's a broad, again, another broad section of human history. 350 years, that's a lot of time. We can lose that as we read because as we read, it seems to progress rapidly, but it's 350 years. That's older than this country is. 350 years goes back to the late, I mean, yeah, to the late 17th century. That's a long time. It's a lot of years. That's how much this covers. Samuel is widely regarded, though the uh, book, we're not sure. It doesn't say who wrote this book. Um, Like Pastor Drew said last week, the human author is of little consequence. We do know. The divine author is the Holy Spirit. And he, whoever is the human author of this book, was led and, and carried along by that Holy Spirit to write down for us what we needed to know. Something else that helps kind of where we're going to go, at least in my mind, what is humanity's problem? Whether it's Israel or the nations, God makes a covenant with Abraham. Abraham was called out of the nations, out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He's not a Jew by birth. He's a Jew by divine birth. He is called out to become the father of 
of the, of the Jewish and the uh, state of Israel. He has the same problem that they had back from the fall. Nothing changes. God judges the nations and he scatters them and he confuses their language. And then he calls this man Abram out of the nations to be a blessing to the nations he called them out of. And he would be a blessing to them. But his descendants and he and his descendants continue to seem to fall into the same problems. What must change in the life of these people? Abraham is an example. Isaac is an example. Jacob is an example. And as we see, these judges are examples of humanity's need and their sinfulness. They must be given what Abraham was given. They must be given what everyone needs to be born again, and that is the gift of faith. It was said that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Apart from the free gift of faith, that is God's grace, no one can be justified. That's what has to change. Laws, rules, blessings, miracles, Israel will de demonstrate that is not enough. That is simply not enough. They have seen enough. If that was good enough, they would have turned a long time ago. And we're going to see in this book the repeated refrain that goes throughout this book and will progress throughout the rest of their history up into the exile and the years of silence. The same refrain will repeat itself. So, the lineage of Abraham is not enough. The New Testament tells us that. It is not enough to be born a, a physical descendant of Abraham. You must be part of the promised seed. You must be from Isaac, not Ishmael, from Jacob, not Esau. There is a divine calling on the people of God to be born again. So as we kind of take a look at just a brief overview of the book of uh, Judges, as I said, it picks up and immediately the question of leadership, Joshua has passed away and they ask, who will lead us? So the questions of leadership and conquest, completion, the promise to Judah, Judah is the one that's going to lead us. We see here, and it's not teased out as much in this book as it will the next in the book of Ruth and going forward, but the promise now shifts from Abraham to Moses to now Judah. Judah is where this promise is going to continue. So Judah's success, you got the various tribes in the conquest, Benjamin failure to take Jerusalem, Joseph's success in Bethel. You have the failure in the conquest by the rest of the tribes. All of this is laid out in the first two chapters of this book. And then we're introduced to the pattern for all that follows and the cycles of the judges. Um, this pattern of Israel's disobedience will continue. There are 12 judges in the book of Judges. Six of them we know quite a bit about. Six of them we know very little about. The six judges beginning with the first is Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah and Barak, Gideon, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, and then finally Samson. And the book closes out and it highlights Israel's continued two grievous sins that they continue to uh, immerse themselves in. The first is the Danites and their idolatry and their continued idolatry. And then finally, it's a civil war. Israel goes to war against Benjamin. So we start to see this fracture come about. They war with these other nations as God raises up judges in there. They fall into the hands of other nations and God delivers them. And then it closes again at the end of the book and they're fighting amongst themselves now. So, uh, like I said, we're going to be in um, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. But let's look and kind of keeping in mind the scripture reading this morning from Genesis 
uh, um, Deuteronomy 6, and why God give that command, we kind of call the Shema, Hero Israel. Okay. He gives these commands and tells them to keep his promises, his word, his law upon their hearts, and it needs to immerse their every, all of their being, their every waking moment, everything they do about their day needs to be immersed in God's word and his promises made to them. Why? And he tells them, because if you don't, you will follow after the other nations and their gods. You will, if you do not keep the word of God forefront in your lives, you will follow after the other gods. So this is an encouragement that he gives Moses. God tells Moses, now this is on the heels, and you understand Deuteronomy's, a lot of it is a series of what sermons that Moses would have given the people prior to entering the land, okay? So God tells Moses, and this is on the heels of, he just give them, here are the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. Chapter six, or verse 16, and, and the Lord said to Moses, behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in their land that they are entering, and they will forsake and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured, and many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. God tells Moses, this is what they're going to do. The book of Judges is a, is plays out what God told Moses. He tells them, you're going to die. Joshua's going to take the people into the land that I promised. I swore to give to their fathers, to your fathers. But they're going to chase after and whore after other gods. That is going to happen. And that brings us to our text this morning. And we need this reminder and encouragement that Israel continues to forget. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought your, you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out from before you. They shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to gather together as your people to offer our worship to you this Lord's day, to sing praises to you, to hear from you through your word. May we be edified and strengthened to face this world in the coming days and weeks. May you be glorified in this place today. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So the encouragement here is, despite what he has said, the angel of the Lord, as Drew mentioned last week, most commentators, and I tend to agree, I think this is absolutely, when you see the angel of the Lord, I believe it is a pre-incarnate second person of the Godhead, God the Son, the, the Word of God, appearing in human form, communicating to the people. So this is who is speaking. The angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal and he said, I will never break my covenant with you. I will never break my covenant with you. This should be very encouraging. And he has, this is not new. This is not a new promise. He constantly reminds the people of this promise. So again, as we enter into this book of the judges, we will see this pattern. And again, keep in mind, because as we work through it, our minds, modern Western mind can think that these happen in rapid succession, but they do not. They, they, it, this, is a, this is a long process. This is a lot of years. There are fateful years that the Lord grants Israel in some of this time. 
But what we read here is their continued unfaithfulness, their continued to follow and fall into sin and idolatry, and God continues to be a faithful. Each one of these judges, whether we know a lot about them or very little about them, all of them foreshadow Christ. They are the deliverer sent from God. Christ is our ultimate deliverer, deliverer from our ultimate need, and that is sin. They foreshadow, they picture that, uh, each one of them pictures that. So, um, Jonathan Edwards, I thought this kind of, he kind of sums up a little bit in this book, um, his book, A A History of the Work of Redemption, he kind of sums up the the time of the judges in this paragraph I want to read for you today. He says, God's preserving his church. And oh, by the way, this was, when I read this book, I thought it was very interesting and, and and I see what he's saying and I tend to agree with it. He refers to the people of God from the beginning, Old Testament or not, as the church. The called out, redeemed, they, he refers to them as the church. If I, I had never heard of that. I had never seen that. I thought it was interesting and I, I, I like it. So anyway, God's preserving his church and the true religion from being wholly extinct in the frequent apostasies of the Israelites in the time of the judges. How prone was that people to forsake the true God? How, who had done such wonderful things for them? And to fall into idolatry. And how did the land from time to time seem almost overrun with it? But yet God suffered his true worship to be totally rooted out. His tabernacle stood. The ark was preserved. The book of the law was kept from being destroyed. God's priesthood was upheld. And he still had a church among the people. Time after time, when religion seemed to be almost gone, then God granted a revival and sent some angel or raised up some eminent person to be an instrument of their reformation. I thought that sums it up well. This is, what, this is, this is the, the repetition that you will see throughout this book. And we start. The first one was, is Othniel. That is in chapter 3. We hear about him starting in verse 7. And you will, this is going to be a common phrase throughout the, uh, the book. Verse 7 of chapter 3 says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So immediately, just like God told Moses in the wilderness, they're going to do this. This is what they are going to do. So what I want to do for you is kind of highlight, we're going to, I want to highlight a few of the uh, judges and kind of what happened in their life, who they defeated and who they come under um, um, the rule of. So Othniel is the first. They worship the Baals for eight years. And this pattern will continue to repeat itself and the Lord continues to demonstrate his mercy. The people cry and he delivers them. And it says at the end of Othniel's judgeship, the Lord gives Israel and the land rest for 40 years. So for 40 years, they get rest. And then we're introduced to Ehud. And again, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. So here's another apostasy. They fall back into sin. They fall into idolatry. So the Lord gives them into the hand of the Moabites. Moabites are descendants of the bloodline. Abram and Lot are relatives. But Abram's not a, uh, a Lot is not a descendant of Abraham. He is a fellow uh, bloodline. He is of the family of Abraham. And the Moabites comes from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. That is the Moabites. That is who has been, uh, Israel has been given 
into the hands of, and they rule over them for 18 years. The Lord raises up Ehud, and he strengthens his hand against them. One of the things I want to point out about Ehud is his is the parallels and the imagery in this book that foreshadow what is physically happening foreshadows what's spiritually happening. So um, Eglon is a big man. The Bible says he's fat. And this would kind of indicate that he is fat off of the uh, provisions that God has given even this evil man. And he has uh, entered into a gluttonous um, relationship with the many um, blessings and provisions he has been given by God because everything belongs to God. So this is what this fat man, and he's an evil ruler and he's an evil king and he is oppressing the people. So Ehud is, asks an audience in the chamber of Ehud and it says he fashions a dagger or a sword. And the Bible here is very clear to point out that it's not just a regular sword or dagger, but it is two-edged. It is a two-edged sword. That is clear imagery. The Bible clearly says that the word of God, the spirit of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It proceeds from the mouth of God. We see that imagery multiple times in the Bible and in the New Testament. So this imagery, Ehud is going to take a two-edged sword and he says to uh, Eglon, I have a message from God for you. And he walks up behind him and he sticks him with the sword. And I will spare you the gross details of what it describes later. But needless to say, Ehud is dead. He is gone. And this evil ruler is uh, defeated and the people are uh, freed from the rule of this man. And it says... Uh, that Israel is get given, uh, and the land is given rest for 80 years after this. So an even longer period of time where the land has rest, the people have rest. And again, this rest is, Sabbath means to cease, to rest. This is, this is kind of, it's what's pictured here, is in view here, is the God gives them rest. So this evil king is defeated by God's deliverer, by God's man. Then we shift to uh, Deborah and Barak, and we have some more imagery. Again, the, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who re reigned in Hazor. The commander of this army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. He had 900 chariots of iron and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So Sisera is the commander of this army. And what I want to highlight here is they raise up an army to go after and they defeat the Canaanites and they're delivered from the Canaanites from the hands of Deborah and Barak. But one of the points I want to highlight in this story is uh, Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army, is pursued. And again, it, it talks about his chariots and he was very proud of his chariots and that was how he moved. And he has to flee on foot and he flees to a tent and he uh, finds refuge in the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. A Kenite is not a Jew. Kenite is from the other nations. And he thinks he has rest here. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, talks about this incident with Caesarea. So Caesarea's chariots have been his pride and his confidence. Thus are those disappointed who rest on the creature. Like a broken reed, it not only breaks under them, but pierces them with many sorrows. The idol may quickly become a burden. What we were sick for, God can make us sick of. It is probable that Jael really intended kindness to Caesarea. But by a divine impulse, she was afterwards led to consider him as the determined enemy of the Lord and of his people and to destroy him. All our connections with God's enemies must be broken off. If we would have the Lord for our God and his people for our people, 
He that had thought to have destroyed Israel with his many iron chariots is himself destroyed with one iron nail. Thus the weak things of this world confound the mighty. The Israelites would have prevented much mischief if they had sooner destroyed the Canaanites as God commanded and enabled them. But better be wise late and by wisdom, by experience than never be wise. So Jael takes a tent peg and as Sisera is trying to hide from those pursuing him, she drives a tent peg through the temple of his head, killing him. What I wanted to highlight here is kind of, if you kind of look throughout the Old Testament, back in the garden, we started looking for the promised seed, the first gospel promise that we see, the, the, that God will send from the woman, the seed of a woman that will crush the head of the serpent. And the imagery is intentional here. And how many times we see the enemies of God, God's enemies being killed or wounded by either cutting their head off, or in this case, driving a nail through the head of their enemy, or as David and Goliath is slain with a single stone to the head, and then he goes over and cuts off the Goliath's head. This is intentional imagery showing us that this promise that God has, he's raising up a deliverer that will crush the head of the serpent. And in the time of Christ, and when Jesus comes along, he is crucified on a cross, driven in the ground at a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. You see that imagery of Christ being, his death driving a nail through the serpent's head and crushing his skull. He was defeated. When Christ said on that cross, it is finished, that's what he meant. I am the fulfillment. I am the serpent crusher. My enemies have been defeated. That's what these imageries, when we read the Bible, there's imageries and pictures of these promises that God made all the way back in the beginning. We get to see pictures of them, pictures of them, and pictures of them as he works through telling us these stories. Like I said, there's reasons we know about these stories. Human history is long. There's a lot of things that happen. We are told these things for a reason. There's six judges we know very little about other than they had a lot of children. That's it. That's all we know about them. Why? Because that's all God intended for us to know about them. All right, now we move to Gideon. Uh, Again, uh, God gives them rest 40 years, and then the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. You see this pattern? this This is the purpose of this book, to show us God's faithfulness to these people that continue to be unfaithful. So in um, Judges 6, 12 and 13, one of the things I wanted to kind of show that jumped out at me is, um, I will read, you don't have to turn there if you, can, you want to, you can. Uh, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 6, you kind of see the call of Gideon and, and, and his attitude as he addresses the Lord. An angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our forefathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. The nerve, right? God's the one unfaithful. Why is this happening to us? We haven't done anything wrong. Why is this happening to us? And then fast forward, same chapter, verse 25. The Lord responds to Gideon. That night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has. Interesting. And cut down the Astra that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. He's got a, his father has a altar to Baal. He has the nerve. See, this is the blindness sin puts on people. They're worshiping Baal in his father's home. And he has the nerve to say, why 
Where is God in this? Why has he abandoned us? Sin makes you stupid. But yet this mighty man, God calls, and he will deliver the people. And Gideon, uh, again, some of the things that I, as I read the, the, the story of Gideon, we've all kind of gone through and we know about the, the fleece and, and the, the different things as God shows him um, and works in Gideon to deliver the people. But one of the things I also wanted to highlight and contrast for you is, that kind of jumped out at me, is when he pleads with the Lord about the fleece, it seems very similar to Abraham when he pleads to the same angel of the Lord for Lot at Sodom and Gomorrah. He has this, kind of the same language. He says, please, Lord, don't be angry with me. And he pleads again. He says, for the sake of this, for the sake of this, that's Abraham. And now Gideon does the same with the fleece and asking it to be the dew to wet only the fleece and not the ground. And then the next day, opposite of that. And the Lord does this for him. I just thought it was an interesting thing because as we will see, there's another parallel to this time. And I want to highlight for you um, where I think this is kind of going in the, um, there's another parallel in the life of um, Samson that is very much, or not the life of Samson at the end of this book um, after Samson, that's very parallel to the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. So uh, Gideon doesn't finish well. Gideon is given the name. His name is changed to Jerubbabel, which means let Baal contend with him because he did tear down. He was obedient. He did tear down his father's uh, idols and altars that he had there in his home. And Gideon was successful and does deliver the people. But then it says toward the end of Gideon's life that Gideon had 70 children. <laughs> well, the, the, the admonition to marry one woman, one, one man, one woman from the beginning has not changed. And I think it's almost physically impossible for that to happen in the life of one person, one woman. And in fact, that is the case because it says that he has a, a son from his concubine and he names him Abimelech, which gives you Gideon's mindset here. Abimelech means son of the king. There's no king in Israel but the Lord. But when you name your son son of the king, it tells you what you think of yourself. And I believe this is also kind of foreshadowing a little bit of the life of David. David, a man after God's own heart. But his sin and his sons are destructive. And Abimelech for Gideon is no different. Uh, he immediately, the people immediately go to worshiping and set up the altars, set up Baal worship and the Ashtoreth, and they go right back to it. Up to this point, we see they're delivered into the hands of their enemies. And then at the end of their deliverance, there's rest for the people. After Gideon, there's no rest his son immediately, his lineage and his son is a train wreck. And this Abimelech, son of the king, kills the other son, 70 sons of Gideon. So Gideon does not finish well yet. As we'll see, um, Gideon is part of the redeemed. So we don't have to be perfect we have a perfect savior. So as we move along, uh, we are introduced to the last one I want to highlight for you, and that is Samson. Samson is probably the most common uh, of the stories of the book of Judges. And again, the refrain, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So he gave them into the hand of the Philistines. The Philistines are going to become a thorn in their side for a while now. Again, as I talked about prior to this, Israel, um, th this book covers a lot of years. So we're at the end. 
This is towards the end. We're at the end of that 350 years. And the Philistines, as we will see as we continue, they will be a problem for them for a while. Samson is this mighty man. He is given extreme strength. In our kind of language today, he would almost be a, uh, a Holy Spirit-led superhero. He has incredible strength and, in, and, and, and has uh, wonderful feats of victory over the enemies. He's a mighty man. The thing that I wanted to highlight, though, about Samson is one is his, again, as I said, all of the judges prefigure as deliverers, the ultimate deliverer, and that is Christ. And it was interesting that Samson begins to teach in riddles. And that kind of in my foreshadows a little bit of Jesus, the way Jesus will teach his people, and that is in parables. So um, Samson has a divine announcement to his birth. It says, there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This is another miraculous birth. It's divinely announced. The angel of the Lord appears to his, uh, Samson's mom, and says, you will, a barren woman, you will bear a son. And this is how you should act prior to that. No drink, no strong drink, and he's going to be a Nazarite from birth. This, again, prefigures Jesus. Jesus is a Nazarene. So this prefigures Christ. He's very successful early on and victorious in defeating the Philistines and his enemies. And he falls into the hand of a woman and he is, gives her the source of his strength after time, after time, after time. She asks him, what's the source of your strength? And everything he tells her she does, it doesn't work, and he breaks the bonds. And eventually he tells her his whole heart, the Bible says, and he tells her what is the source of his strength. The source of his strength is not his hair. The source of his strength is the Holy Spirit. But she cuts his hair, he loses his strength. They gouge his eyes out and put him in prison. And the story of Samson ends with Samson's death as he tears down the... Um, temple at, that they have tied him to the posts to and he pushes them over one last time he cries to the Lord let me get my strength back it's a resurrection picture that it looked bad for him his success and it looks like they're going to be victorious they're making a clown out of this God's deliverer and they're going to tie him up to the temple and they're just going to celebrate and this is this mighty man of these nasty Israelites. Look at, look at this. This is their warrior. This is their deliverer. And he dies with them, but he takes with them thousands. So it says of him, it says he kills more in his death of the enemy than in his life. Again, there's parallels to Jesus here. I've talked to the students and kind of in our going through is, is what you see as the gospel goes forward, this sword. God is destroying his enemies, either physically or spiritually. God's word does not return void. Every time the word of God goes forward, you are destroyed. It destroys its enemies unto salvation or condemnation. There is no neutrality. There is none of that. This happens every time, the Bible says. His word accomplishes its purpose. These, things pre these are physical representations of what happens spiritually among the people. So when we go out into the world, that is what we are armed with, and we have that confidence. If you are born again, the Lord's word destroyed you unto salvation. 
not unto condemnation. That is the picture here. And finally, the last thing um, I want to highlight here is the story of the Levite and his concubine. That's, it's a horrible story, but it should draw parallels to you to the story back in Genesis with Lot at Sodom and Gomorrah. It is a horrific story. And I think what is being communicated here is, again, it's intentional that we know about this. First of all, a Levite is who? They work in the priest. The, 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 uh, the Levites are of the priesthood. They work in the temple. These are supposed to be the men set apart. And he has a concubine. And the story, we won't go into the details. You can read it if you'd like. It's horrible. It's worse than the one at Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think what is being communicated here is what Jesus says in Matthew when he says um, that they would have repented if Sodom and Gomorrah had received what you received. Israel has become worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Theirs was, their wickedness had exceeded Sodom and Gomorrah and that land was destroyed and judged by God and rightly so. And we close the book out again. It's, um, it's, it closes and it, it kind of sets the stage for where we're going. This constant refrain. And here, the last verse, verse 25 of chapter 21, the last words of this book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the end of the book. That's where we're going. That's what these people are doing. So, so what? How does a book like this have relevance for us today? What are we to take away from this book? There's a confidence that comes. I, I was approached by an older fella at work this week. He is a, uh, um, he's retired. What he does for us is kind of, he drives the truck between buildings and takes people back and forth. He is a uh, Vietnam War vet. He's probably 75, 76 years old. And he come up to me and he's done it before and he, he knows what I do. Um, and he says, Brad, how long do you think the Lord's going to put up with this? <laughs> and I smile and I say, I think for a while now. I said, because he's put up with this for a long time already. He's been long suffering with Israel. If you read the Old Testament, he's been more than patient and long suffering. I don't know why that should change. He says, really? I said, yeah. I said, because I believe the promises fulfilled in Christ, these promises have victory here, not later, here. That's what I believe. I have the confidence. Is the Lord going to return? Absolutely. He will set up his eternal uh, kingdom and he will, there will be a second judgment. But until then, I also believe that he is ruling and reigning from heaven right now and he is putting his enemies under his feet. So when we approach a text like this, the question I am asked, I ask myself, where are my idols? Where do I do what is right in my own eyes? Where do I do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? I do. The question is not like Gideon, where are you, God? It's where do I need to repent? Where do we need to repent? Because this is not something that I think that you, we tend to look out there and go, if it weren't for them, things would be a lot better. But I will contend with you, they look like they do because of us, not because of them. We have not been like Israel. They went in and become like the other nations. They didn't go in and tell them, of who God is and, and his law and his word. And they were supposed to be the light to the nations. They were supposed to be that light. Instead, they followed after them. Where are we not doing what the Lord has commanded us? I believe that it 
lays directly at the feet of the church and not doing what she's been called to do. Have the confidence that we do have a victorious king that is ruling and reigning from heaven right now and he is putting his enemies under his feet. And how are we to live? We are to live like he said before he left. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that I have commanded you. What has he commanded us? Everything, everything in the Bible, all of it. Do that, do that, do what I said. That's what he has told us to do. And when we, again, I mentioned that earlier, there's no such thing as neutrality and we've bought into that myth. Believe me, the world buys that. They don't buy it either. They know there's no neutrality. They will not shake hands with what God has, what God has said. They know they must eradicate it. But the church has bought into, well, there's a neutral ground here that, that, that we can find common ground with. The church and the world, the unbelieving world, we can find commonality somewhere. There's no such thing. It's a myth. It's a myth. We are to call people to submit to the rule of their creator. He has given us a standard. He is not silent on these issues. He has said what we are to do. And we either believe them or we don't. That is something I believe with everything in me, okay? So how do we identify our idols? What are we to do? Where is our hope? Our hope's in Christ. Our hope is 100% in Christ. I've gone longer than I wanted to. I wanted to close, I think, with three three scriptures that are extremely, there's some that I go back to all the time. Um, first Peter, let's, let's just look, you can follow with me real quick. Uh, first Peter 3, 13 and 17. Beginning in 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. I'm sorry, that was 13, 13, that's my fault. Uh, Beginning in 3.13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. And then back a few pages. This is, that's how we should live. That's how we should approach this unbelieving world. Not as cowards, not as giving lip service to them, but boldly standing to what God has called us to do. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, we'll begin there. And it recounts this, generation we've just gone through. And he says, this is the roll call of faith that we, we, we're all very familiar with. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped to the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. And then finally, it is one of my favorite Psalms. And I, when I answer a question like Terry approached me with, it is this Psalm, but it's not this alone. It's many promises like this. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it real quick. It's Psalm 2. It's one of my favorites because that's why I have the confidence. I believe he's doing this. This is, this is what's happening regardless of how bad things get. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? 
the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heavens laughs. The load holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This is the confidence we as believers should have. And we shouldn't think that we have to face this world. We look across the nation and think we can change the nation. But we have been given spheres of influence, our families, this church, things that we have control over. We can point our fingers at the outside unbelieving world, but do we start at home? That's where God has always said to start. That's what Deuteronomy 6 said. It was a family command to keep the Lord and his word forefront in their minds and they failed to do that. When families fail to keep the Lord preeminent in their, all of their lives, all of it, this is how we, that's how we find ourselves the way we, where we are. So how do we change that? We start by changing what we can change and we can change our families. We can start doing these things. And by the Lord's grace, he will give us success because that's what he has promised. That is the confidence we should have. He changed the, he changed the greatest empire that has ever been on the face of this earth by, tw by 12 men. 12 ordinary men changed the entire world because they had the message that changes nations. That's the gospel. And that's what we have been armed with. And we can have confidence in that. Let's pray. Father, I do pray. Thank you for this time. I pray that you would give us the confidence that we can learn from books like Judges and we can see the errors. And, and by your grace, you have shown us these errors. And and may we learn from them. May we not be like Israel and have to learn the hard way. Father, may we trust in you and your promises. Lead us as we go about our day. Uh, keep us um, encouraged in your word and what you have accomplished in Christ. It's his name I ask. Amen.